0: Well, hello. Good afternoon. Good evening. Um, I'm Ken Shadlin in the Department of International Development. Welcome to tonight's talk. It's a great pleasure to have uh, Professor Mireya Solis here. Mireya is Associate Professor of Political Science at American University and also a Senior Fellow and the Knight Chair in Japan Studies at the Brookings Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C., Maria is one of the foremost scholars on East Asian political economy, um, particularly trade and regional integration in the Asia-Pacific region. She has too many articles and books for me to list them all, but they've appeared in publications such as International Studies Quarterly, Review of International Political Economy, Journal of East Asian Studies, and among others, um, and a number of important books on these topics as well. Tonight she's going to be talking about Uh, Japan Trade Strategy, which I believe is related to a book manuscript that she's preparing called, if I have this down properly, Dilemma of a Trading Nation. And then there was a subtitle which I've forgotten, but uh, you can tell us all about it in the next 40 minutes, all right? So um, I'm also supposed to remind you all to turn your mobile phones to silent. And over there, there's all sorts of instructions about what I'm supposed to do if people start getting out of hand and heckling and things like that. And hopefully, I will not need to resort to those instructions. I see Nicholas here, so I might need to, but uh, you behave yourself, all right? Um, no, um, everybody, I hope you'll join me in welcoming Mireya, and I look forward to um, the talk. Thanks.
1: Uh, Thank you very much, Ken, for that very generous uh, introduction. And Good evening, everybody. It's a pleasure um, to be here. Um, I haven't been in London for quite, quite a long time, so it's always nice uh, to come this way and to address a different audience and to try my ideas and see what reaction I get. Hopefully it will not be the heckling uh, type of reaction, but it would be wonderful to have a very good uh, uh, discussion at the end of the presentation. Um, What I'm going to present today, and I hope that everybody can hear me, is really work in progress, and that's why I think I would benefit from uh, your uh, comments and suggestions. And uh, let me tell you a little bit about what is the main uh, proposition of this book and of the presentation I'm going to make uh, today. And uh, I would like to start by saying that these are really interesting times in the world of international trade. For a long time now, we know that the WTO has been unable to wrap up the Doha Round. Just last week in Geneva, we did not have good news that it would be possible to have something very meaningful when the trade ministers meet in Bali. And because the Doha Round has not moved, we now know, of course, that countries have resorted to the negotiation of bilateral trade agreements. We have three, four hundred of such agreements. For the most part, they were small trade agreements. But things have changed rapidly because what we are now witnessing actually is the emergence of what we call mega-trade agreements. These are very large trading groupings that represent, say, 40% of world output. I'm talking about the Trans-Pacific Partnership Initiative that puts together 12 countries in the Asia-Pacific region. Or the agreement that the United States is negotiating with the European Union, which represents 45% of world GDP. So people pay attention. In East Asia, there are initiatives, for example, the one led by China, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. And there's also a negotiation between Japan, China and South Korea, the three largest Northeast Asian economies, finally trying to come together in a negotiation. So things are changing rapidly. And even within the WTO, there are very important initiatives. For example, the negotiation of a plurilateral agreement on services. And this is very interesting because it signals the possibility that that the WTO may go in the direction of a critical mass approach. That is, there could be agreements that some countries sign on to, but others do not. And that actually represents a major challenge to the founding principle of the WTO, the most favored nation. So there is a lot of things going on on the trade agenda today. At the same time, if you look at what's going on within these countries, I would make the case that trade has become an ever more polarizing issue. I used to think that it couldn't get more heated than this, and actually I find myself thinking that the good old times, there's nothing like the controversies that I'm facing now every day when I make my case about trade agreements. And I think that you know, many people are actually pinning more of their hopes on trade policy. The expectations are higher because many of these countries have recently speared austerity and therefore they think that trade can offer an off-the-budget source of growth, that trade can actually offer that a promised lever to try to move forward with structural reforms to kick-start slow-growing economies. So we expect trade to do more. But we also blame trade policy for more of our problems and tribulations. And some people, the most extreme view, if you will, of the critics of trade policy actually make the case that these trade agreements undermine uh, sovereignty and erode national identity. So the politics are indeed very heated. But what I think is really interesting is that the trade agenda, growingly complex. The trade debates, even ever more heated. And yet, when you look at what us academics are doing in terms of coming up with models on the domestic politics politics of trade, I would make the case that there's not a lot new out there because so much has been written already about the domestic politics of trade that we actually now fall in a very, very comfortable causal chain to explain why a country comes out in favor or not of negotiating a trade agreement. What is this mainstream view on trade? Well, you start with the preferences of economic sectors based on their position in the international division of labor. If they're competitive, they're going to be interested in gaining access abroad. They're going to be pro-liberalization. Once you establish those preferences, then you look at what are the barriers for collective action. Can they come together? What kinds of coalitions will be put forward? What kind of lobbying strategies will be effective? And then you bring in the role of institutions, to see which institutions empower or disempower different trade coalitions to explain outcomes and this is very solid analysis. I'm not criticizing the mainstream view of the domestic politics of trade but what I'm telling you is that you're trying to get published these days just repeating this set of causal steps to try to come up with why a country is in favor or not of trade liberalization is not going to cut it. So in search for a new model, in search for a fresh look at what are the domestic politics of trade, I've come up with the idea of trade governance dilemmas and see if it flies or not. We're going to see how you react to this. The key word here is dilemma because what I'm trying to highlight is that policymakers, when they are designing trade policy, are trying to accomplish Three fundamental tasks that I'll highlight in a minute, I'll explain in a minute. The problem, the kicker is that these are all desirable goals, but that to some extent they're contradictory. And therefore, you cannot have it all. Therefore, they're important trade offs. So, trade policy is an arena of frustration. Because the more progress you make towards one desired goal, the more you're going to have to surrender of that other cherished objective. But trade policy is also a venue, an arena for conflict. Because different groups in society are going to have different views as to whether those specific trade-offs are the best way to try to design trade policy. There's not going to be always consensus as to how, how you try to reconcile these desirable objectives of trade policy, hence the dilemmas. So what are these uh, um, goals that I make the case policymakers try to accomplish when they design trade policy? First of all, there is the efficiency goal. The idea is that you want to uh, negotiate trade agreements that are meaningful that are consequential, that actually will open significant markets abroad, that will actually generate large flows of investment. And you want to negotiate agreements that will also empower you to carry out a set of domestic economic reforms that left to your own devices perhaps would not gain traction. So very frequently what's behind the the desire to negotiate these trade agreements is actually the desire to influence the domestic balance of power so that you can actually have a larger chance, a better chance of moving forward with reforms. So efficiency, very important consideration. Then there's a question of legitimacy, right? You want to generate broad support among public opinion regarding the merits of trade liberalization. And one way to do this is of course to have transparency as to what you are negotiating, to have accountability so that the people feel that when we send out these trade negotiators, they're actually operating within a given mandate, that they're not overextending uh, uh, themselves. And you want to have inclusion in the sense that broad groups of society should feel that they have input, that they are stakeholders in this policy, if they're going to support it, if they're going to like it, if they're not going to challenge contested. And the last of these uh, uh, goals is of course political expediency. And that has to do with the fact that designing an incredibly ambitious trade policy that's pure fantasy does not make it, does not cut it, right? You have to have some pragmatism. You have to understand what are the political hurdles ahead. Who are the veto players that are going to oppose and derail a trade initiative if you don't have something to try to bring them on board. So the political expediency is also very necessary if that trade policy is actually going to have a real chance. So the problem is, of course, that when you put together these three objectives, you're trying to get all the score on all these uh, areas of efficiency, legitimacy, and political expediency, I argue this creates two central dilemmas, two central trade-offs that I think confound trade policymakers everywhere. What are these dilemmas? Let me try to explain them uh, briefly. One is what I call the centralization versus inclusion dilemma. And I think that it's been very well established by the literature on trade policy making that if what you're after are bold policy departures, if what you're after are agreements that are really going to bring about significant reform and therefore push aside vested interests that are protectionists, that are not willing to change their ways, then the recipe for that is centralization, top-down decision-making, the insulation of trade negotiators, from the pressures, the political pressures, from vested interest, from protectionist interest groups. Right? That's one way to accomplish these bold departures. But insulation comes with a price, because by giving this autonomy to trade policymakers, that also means that they're going to be less responsive to the bottom-up demands from civil society. And therefore, the efficiency gains of expedited decision-making, of bold policy, trade policy departures that will generate significant pressure for reform may come at the cost of eroding social support and legitimacy of trade policy. So how you navigate this tension between centralizing trade policy and keeping it responsive to broader demands from civil society. I think it's a very difficult act to uh, uh, accomplish. And the second uh, uh, dilemma that I highlight in this framework is what I like to call the compensation versus reform dilemma. And here, of course, policymakers may give side payments to those disadvantaged sectors because they would like to provide a safety net for those sectors that are going to have a very difficult time adjusting to market opening. The problem is that by giving those side payments, by extending that safety net, you may also be eliminating the incentives for reforming that sector and therefore the continuation of these low productivity sectors. Therefore, the economy does not experience this process of industrial upgrading. And therefore, this dilemma means that there could be political pragmatism because you want to co-opt vested interests and also there can be legitimacy benefits from building a safety net for those sectors disadvantaged by trade liberalization. But the problem is that by doing this, you must be fully aware that you must be sacrificing some of the efficiency gains of using trade agreements as an instrument of reform. So these, I think, highlight why is it so difficult for trade policymakers to get it right. Because there's no right answer. Because when you try to do one thing, you're sacrificing another desirable thing. Hence, the whole theme is that there are dilemmas. And what I do with this then is to try to uh, show how national choices on how to navigate these dilemmas have very real impacts on outcomes, on how a country negotiates trade agreements. And even though the title of the talk was actually just Japan, I decided to uh, make a comparison between Japan and South Korea because I think that that highlights, makes it more clear how different has been the choice of Japan and South Korea and how different have been the outcomes because they navigated the dilemmas uh, so differently. Now, let me start this comparison by talking about the time before Japan actually entered the Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, uh, trade agreement. Japan just joined this agreement last March it participated in the first round in July. So Japan is a newcomer to this very important trade agreement. But it has had tremendous repercussions on how Japan has now uh, uh, fashioned, designed its trade agreements, and how Korea also has uh, responded to that. So I'm going to divide this comparison you know, by looking at the time before Japan joined the TPP and then after Uh, uh, Japan joined the Trans-Pacific Partnership. I know we have some uh, uh, former or still current uh, uh, Japanese bureaucrats in the audience. Let me start showing you this slide because this was a slide that for a long time was very painful for Japanese officials to look at. Why? Because what this slide shows is how much have uh, these trade agreements really done in terms of opening preferentially markets abroad. It looks at the export share covered by the trade agreements that different countries have negotiated. And as you can see, I don't know if I have, I have a way to highlight, but you can see that South Korea is way ahead of Japan. South Korea had negotiated agreements that covered a third of its exports, whereas Japan had negotiated 13 agreements that covered 19 percent of its exports. You do the math. These are numerous agreements that accomplish in terms of export share very little. So very busy negotiation of negotiating multiple agreements, lots of investments of bureaucratic resources. Many years go by and this is 10 years, a decade of negotiating trade agreements and this is what Japan has to show for. So clearly Japan was not keeping up with uh, South Korea. Another way in which Japan was not looking particularly good is when you actually focus on the quality of these trade agreements and you look at the degree of ambition of these trade agreements. What this table does is that it shows you the liberalization ratio. What it means basically is how many tariffs will be eliminated 10 years after the agreement enters into force. Now, probably you've taken course on international trade and you know that the WTO actually does not have very sound rules to guarantee the quality of trade agreements and has very broad language, Article 24, just saying that trade agreements should liberalize substantially all trade. Substantially never clearly defined, but trade policymakers around the world have come up with the notion that a trade agreement that matters should at least eliminate 90% of the tariffs in that 10-year period. And that's what you see in that dotted line that I added there. That is what I call the WTO standard. In this corner, you can see how Korea's trade agreements with the United States and with the European Union score. And Korea actually, South Korea actually does very well high liberalization ratios, in the order of 97%, 98%. That's very impressive. Now, if you look at what Japan has done, had done, so far, very different story. Because what I'm telling you is that in every trade agreement that Japan had negotiated prior to joining the Trans-Pacific Partnership, Japan failed the WTO test. Japan was not able to break through uh, That 90% guideline. And it's not hard to know why this was the case. Agriculture, right? Agriculture is difficult for both countries. Korean agriculture is not competitive either. It also has the same problems of low scale production and aging of the farmers and has been, of course, the one sector that South Korea has protected the most. And yet, the paths of South Korea and Japan began to diverge very clearly, as you can see from this table. What this table does is that it shows you, just looking at the agricultural tariff lines, how many of these tariffs were set aside as outright exclusions or where there's a postponement of the negotiation. Basically, where they were not going to open the market in those commodities. it's interesting to note, I think, is that South Korea actually in the beginning doesn't look that different from Japan, still excluding significant amounts of agricultural commodities. And I think it's actually quite striking the agreement with the uh, EFTA, where 63% of all agricultural lines are off-limits, the European Free Trade Association. And what really marks the transition point for Korea is a negotiation with the United States because South Korea went from an extensive protection of agriculture to redefining its core defensive interest to rice and rice alone. That is the most important commodity, and the same is for Japan. But what South Korea has been able to do is to say, this is the one we're not giving up. But that means, because rice represents only 16 tariff lines, that means that in terms of overall agricultural tariffs, almost everything is on the table. Japan has not reached that position. In all these 13 free trade agreements, Japan had 400 tariff lines that were outright exclusions and 320 that were postponed for a future discussion. And this meant, of course, this was why Japan could not pass the WTO uh, test. So how can I use my framework on trade governance dilemmas to explain these sharply different outcomes from two countries that, in principle, could be very comparable, right? These are both Asian countries that took off based on a model of export-led growth that – set aside agriculture. These were countries that were hardcore multilateralists and at the same time began to negotiate preferential trade agreements. And these were countries that took that decision of negotiating free trade agreements because they were responding to the same uh, uh, structural forces. The uh, stagnation of the WTO, the proliferation of free trade agreements elsewhere in the world that created concerns about discrimination. So it's a nice, neat experiment, if you will, because these were countries that were in many ways coming from the same point. There were other differences that we can discuss later. But in terms of these elements, they looked alike, and yet they were behaving so differently. So uh, this is how I try to explain it by using this uh, trade governance dilemma notion. So uh, let me start by looking at uh, South Korea with the centralization versus inclusion uh, dilemma. And the idea here is of course that South Korea has always been more of a top-down nation. It has a presidential system. The uh, South Korean president uh, has tremendous power and it uses it effectively. And it controls very much the legislative agenda and is very much free to organize and reorganize bureaucratic structures in order to accomplish uh, 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 goals, in order to implement policies. So what happened in South Korea in 1998 is that uh, President Kim decided that in order to promote structural reforms on the heels of the Asian financial crisis, it was very important to revamp the economic model and free trade agreements were going to be an important component of this. And he decided to reorganize, restructure the bureaucracy and concentrate trade negotiation authority in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade. So you take the trade uh, uh, negotiation authority out of the hands of the line ministry, the commerce ministry that's more in touch with you know, domestic interests and you give it to the diplomats to the elite officials who are also thinking about trade policy, not just economically, but from the point of view of geopolitics. And you give them tremendous political cover and you give a mandate to negotiate extensive trade agreements at the table. Uh, And you create also efficient coordination mechanisms to avoid inter-bureaucratic fighting. Now of course this generated bold policy departures and Korea then in a few years actually began to negotiate very actively and in 2006 announced and it came really as a surprise for most of the Korean population that they were going to negotiate with the United States and they had already agreed to very important preconditions to do so regarding a screen quota, regarding beef imports, very sensitive issues in South Korea. And this could only be done because you have this top-down decision-making system in place. The problem is, of course, and the reaction comes on the inclusion side of things. And South Korea has very politicized trade discussions. South Korea has periodic ratification crisis. There's been a lot of discussion as to whether it's important to rebalance or not The balance of power between the executive and the National Assembly? Because the uh, 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 legislators feel marginalized. They only come and vote on an agreement but they're not briefed during the negotiations. This is a theme actually that seems to be very common. This is a very, very urgent debate, for example, that's taking place today in the United States. What should be the right balance between the executive and the legislative? In South Korea, it has been tilted in one direction and therefore there has been backlash. And therefore, for example, the first agreement that South Korea signed was with Chile. Chile represents almost nothing in terms of exports or imports for South Korea, and yet it generated tremendous political difficulties. It took four times to get that agreement ratified because they simply the votes were not there. At the time of the ratification of the korea Free Trade Agreement, for example, Actually, parliamentary tactics had to be invoked to call for a closed plenary session so that while the opposition party was not present, they voted on the trade agreement. That actually undermines the legitimacy of these trade agreements, right, because you use these uh, a harsher parliamentary techniques. So that has been very difficult for South Korea to uh, solve. And there have been a lot of protests in the streets. We're talking about a mobilized population. 300 or so organizations that formed to oppose the agreement with the United States. Hundreds, thousands of people on the streets to protest against the agreement with the United States. And for example, with when President Lee announced in 2008 that he was going to open uh, imports of beef from the United States in order to facilitate the free trade agreement, you had the so-called candlelight uh, protests. So people just going on the streets en masse. That's the kind of politics, trade politics, that you get in South Korea. Very difficult uh, 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 to navigate. Now compare that to what has happened in Japan. If South Korea was top down, Japan was the land of fragmented policymaking. Every single characteristic that I can think of that would generate policy mobilism, gridlock, present in Japan. Let me give you a sense of why so challenging in Japan to come up with bold initiatives, why Japan was sort of sitting on the sidelines and not negotiating really consequential trade agreements. First of all, Japan has been in the past characterized by weak prime ministerial leadership. The prime minister in Japan in terms of policy making was overshadowed by the bureaucracy and by the ruling party which both actually came up with most of the policies laterally without having that top-down effect. The Prime Minister also was very much marginalized in many cases because of deep divisions within his own party. And frequently in Japan, the worst enemy of the Prime Minister was not in the opposition camp, but actually was within his own party, trying to torpedo almost all his initiatives. Japan also, until recently, six long years of what they called the twisted diet, which means uh, uh, gridlock in the legislation because the different chambers are controlled by different parties, and therefore it's about stopping what the ruling party could do. And then you had the revolving door of prime ministers, one prime minister a year, who can actually plot consequential long-term policies when you're actually feeling that you're about to go out. The prime ministers in Japan have had a very short honeymoon period with the public and the phenomenon was that as soon as they were elected, a few weeks down the road, their opinion, their their public support rates were now downward and that meant that they could not command the allegiance of their own party members. So, you know, this does not facilitate any real reform effort now, in Japan, there was also the desire to use these trade agreements as an instrument of reform. And there was also the desire to try to centralize decision-making. And there were some efforts to give more powers to the cabinet office. And different prime ministers in Japan at certain points said, we are, different ones said, I am going to be the control tower. I'm going to be acting as the free trade agreement minister. I'm going to make sure that this receives high priority. But in fact, none of these materialized. All of these Prime Ministers were first and foremost concerned with their domestic agenda. So, for example, Prime Minister Koizumi, I don't know how many of you are familiar with him, but he is considered to be one of the more reformist, strongest Prime Ministers in Japan, but he was concerned with postal privatization. He was not looking at the trade agreements as a central area. And more recently, Prime Minister Noda, who also was trying for Japan to join the TPP, was actually now fighting the battle to increase consumption, the consumption tax. And we know that taxes are never popular, and that's what consumed his administration. So you don't have, therefore, decentralization. Japan is a land also of bureaucratic, uh, legendary bureaucratic sectionalism. And therefore, Japan becomes a land of iron triangles, where you have the agricultural sub-government that basically stops on its tracks any attempt to really undermine the core institutions of protection and subsidization of agriculture. That's why you have Japan that stays below that dotted line. That's why you have Japan negotiating only with small trading partners. Because you could never have the institutional configuration to go beyond that. But it also means and because the trade agreements are actually not going to shake up anybody, it also means that the politics of it are more muted. And the ratification of these trade agreements in Japan have not been major political events by any means. You did have the mobilization of the farmers, and the farmers are uh, the agricultural cooperatives, I should clarify because it's separate from not exactly the same as the farmers. They are very, very adept uh, lobbyists. And they did turn out, you know, their members to protest these agreements. But it's not this across the board, you know, across society, mobilization to post a trade agreement the way in which you had in uh, South Korea. How does compensation versus reform uh, 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 look? Well, in South Korea, actually, from the get-go, It was important for the government in order to get these agreements ratified in national assembly to compensate side payments, subsidies, right and left to the farmers. And this became an entrenched practice. In every trade agreement, money had to be set aside to compensate the farmers. And in the beginning, to be quite frank, the problem with these subsidies was that they were just handouts that they had no, uh, uh, they were not designed in any way in which it would facilitate, you know, the growth of larger scale production, the growth of full-time farmers, the exit of the f- uh, aging farmers. There was no reform component to the subsidies, and these subsidies have grown in time. In the negotiation with the United States, actually, we saw some improvement in trying to have some reform built into the way in which you subsidize the farmers, and therefore for the first time you know, most of the money was not going to be given as just cash handouts but was going to be allocated to try to promote efficiency, productivity, to give it only to full-time farmers, and to give incentives for old farmers to sell their plots and exit agriculture so that the new farmers could come in and operate in larger uh, uh, plots. Now, so this is what uh, 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 happened in South Korea and it's also true that all this compensation has not really eliminated the contestation that takes place every time that South Korea negotiates a trade agreement. So the problem with the subsidies is that little reform and actually little appeasement of the opponents, but the subsidies have now become a very well developed entrenched practice of how South Korea deals with the domestic opposition to trade agreements. Now, Japan. What's really interesting about the Japan compensation versus reform story is that Japan is the land of compensation. Political scientists that have looked at Japan have always alluded to how important money politics is pork barrel uh, politics and how different low productivity sectors have received compensation from the government but what's really striking is that when the government decided to negotiate free trade agreements despite the fact that side payments are a common fact of life of political life in Japan they said no we will not give subsidies to the farmers and you know in interviews asking I was kind of perplexed Why you decide to be a purist this time? And the arguments they made were as follows. First of all, there had been a significant backlash at the time of the Uruguay round because that was the first time ever that Japan made some concessions to open the market in rice. And the government had given this balloon huge payment to the farmers that had been much criticized because it actually did nothing to reform agriculture and went mostly to pork barrel, to construction companies, and land works. So they didn't want a repeat of that. They also felt that if they gave compensation for one trade agreement, they would chain themselves to compensate for every single agreement afterward. And lastly, because Japan introduced what they call direct payments. And here I don't want to get very technical, but the idea is that the Japanese government had subsidized the garments before by keeping the producer prices high. Now, they eliminated that, and they introduced an income compensation program. And therefore, the, the, the farmers were going to receive a subsidy to guarantee a certain level of uh, income. The problem with this approach, of course, is, uh, well, the different ones. But two, the direct payments are not going to accomplish the two important objectives here. First of all, the farmers do not see in them any incentive uh, uh, to then agree to a liberalization. The farmers think that the government is providing these subsidies because it is owed to them given the multifunctionality of agriculture. When you hear multifunctionality in agriculture in any trade discussion you're talking about protectionism. But basically the idea is that because agriculture provides these other benefits, environmental conservation, the preservation of uh, cultural traditions and so forth, that it's right that the government provides, set aside these funds for the farmers. That does not entitle the government to go ahead and then open the market. They're not agreeing to uh, uh, that. And the problem also with the direct payments is that it's not going to bring reform the way in which they were originally conceived because they were given to everybody and not just the f- full-time farmers. And therefore in Japan you have what is known as the weekend farmers. that is, people that keep tiny plots of land that you know most of their income comes from actually working at a company, but where they are st- uh, sticking to holding the land because there's no incentive to give it up because actually then you get compensated. And therefore, this becomes a self-perpetuating, very negative uh, cycle. Now, this is how Japan and South Korea used to look not so long ago. I first wrote this paper, I think, a year ago, or maybe a year and a half ago, and this was the story. Now things have changed dramatically and they have changed because Japan decided after thinking for two years because it does not have the top-down uh, decision-making capable of moving swiftly, decided to join the Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership. Let me then first of all highlight why the stakes are so high in this trade negotiation and how it has changed things for, uh, for Japan and then uh, uh, South Korea. The stakes would not be higher. I would pause it because, first of all, it helped displace the gloom that existed around Japan, that Japan was fated to be, destined to be a passive player in the world of international trade negotiations, that Japan could not put its act together and join the big leagues. <coughs> there was this real concern that Japan would be marginalized because everybody else was moving with more ambitious trade negotiations. Also because South Korea actually, as I said before, was so far ahead of Japan and because South Korean and Japanese firms in automobiles and electronics are rivals, there was this concern that Japanese companies were going to be at disadvantaged because they couldn't compete on the same terms as as South Korean companies could. Third, because this was the agreement that could be used to promote structural reform. When Japan was negotiating with Mexico, with Malaysia, with Thailand, these are much smaller countries that could not then demand of Japan really painful economic reforms. The United States can. These other countries, Australia, these other countries have more leverage because they have a larger market to offer. And therefore, they could indeed provide much more of an incentive for Japan and for the reformers in Japan that want to use these agreements to move forward With these uh, reforms. And lastly, and this is where the effect has been I think more spectacular, because it actually gave Japan leverage in many other trade negotiations. So this is what happened after Japan joined the TPP. In the light green light, you see the summary of what Japan accomplished in 10 years of trade negotiations. The 13 free trade agreements that covered 19% of its exports. Since Japan joined the TPP, four different major trade negotiations have materialized, and every one of them dwarfs in importance what Japan had accomplished before. You have the trilateral agreement with uh, China, Japan, and Korea. You have the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership that puts together 16 uh, East Asian countries. You have the TPP that I've referred to, and you have Japan's negotiation with the European Union. And what's really interesting, and this is the subject of another paper, is that the reason why Japan got so many different possibilities now within reach has to do because many other countries reacted directly to the possibility of Japan being in TPP. And that reaction was much more pronounced in China than anywhere else. China actually had put in the back burner the negotiation of a trilateral agreement with Japan. And after Japan became very serious about joining the TPP, they sped up the feasibility study a year ahead so that this trade agreement could be negotiated faster. China and Japan had long had an argument as to what should be the configuration of an East Asia trade agreement. Japan proposing a 16-nation block China proposing a 13-nation bloc that would not include Australia, New Zealand, and India. And China began finally to move towards the configuration that Japan had long advocated and what is now called uh, the Regional Comprehensive Economic uh, Partnership. So very quickly, oh, very quickly then, let me then highlight how Japan got there by using, again, this framework of the different dilemmas and what can we expect uh, uh, in the future. First of all, in terms of centralization, this year has been really fascinating uh, if you are interested in Japanese politics because many of the issues of fragmentation that I highlighted before and I thought I sounded extremely pessimist have been in some ways addressed. We don't know if this is going to be sustainable long-term, but Japan today looks very differently than it looked a year ago. First of all, long and behold, you have a powerful prime minister. Prime Minister Abe, who has been able now a year in in office, has been able to sustain public support levels of 60 to 70%. That had not happened in Japan for a long time. And what's important there is that that gives him some immunity from challengers within his party to pursue bold policy initiatives, first of all. Second, his party wins the elections last December, the upper house elections, and then also wins the elections for the upper house in July. And finally, then, you do not have this legislative gridlock. Finally, you have now bills that are being approved in parliament. This gives, of course, an entirely different sense of purpose the ability that you can actually implement uh, policies. There are no, at this point, no would-be challengers within the party, and certainly there are no would-be challengers in the opposition camp, because I think that what the July Opera House elections really uh, reflected was not only that the Prime Minister was very skillful in sending the message that Japan could be uh, revitalized economically again, the so-called Abenomics, and we can discuss that separately if you want, but but also it reflected the implosion of opposition parties in Japan for different reasons that, again, we can discuss. The point being that the prime minister in Japan, for the first time in six years or perhaps even longer, looks capable of doing something. And one of his first initiatives was actually to get Japan to join the Trans-Pacific Partnership. They've also revamped the way in which they negotiate trade agreements by creating a so-called TPP team of elite bureaucrats who respond to the cabinet, to uh, the Minister Amari, who is also in charge of economic revitalization. So you have a much more explicit articulation that these trade agreements are now part of these structural reforms that are on the table. In Japan, this Abenomics program is described as three arrows. The third arrow is structural reform. Some people are saying that the trade agreement might actually be the fourth arrow. So finally you begin to see this link between opening and reform in a much more compelling way than ever before. And more interestingly, we see now that with decentralization, the most powerful lobby group in Japan opposing trade agreements has been pushed aside. I'm talking about the agricultural cooperatives. And what was really interesting to see is that once the ruling party, the Liberal Democratic Party, had to go with the Prime Minister and endorse the uh, uh, membership in the TPP, that left isolated agricultural lobby and they could not find any opposition party capable of a national projection that could challenge the Prime Minister. And therefore they're stuck with the LDP, and we're finally beginning to see some vulnerabilities in their lobbying uh, capabilities. Now it could be, it could very well be, according to my model, that because Japan is more centralized, these issues of inclusion are going to become uh, uh, more important, or exclusion, actually. And the TPP actually, let me just very quickly show you this transparency, the TPP could actually begin to generate more discomfort among some sectors in Japanese society. This has not happened yet. Still, public opinion still is in favor of TPP. But the debate has shifted. And you know, I just wanted to show you this to try to make it a little lighter. Some of these battle for the uh, uh, public opinion that is taking place in Japan. And you know, following uh, Japanese tradition of manga, it happens through these uh, 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 anime or through these uh, 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 illustrations. So basically what you have here is the uh, 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 pro-liberalization view. This comes from the peak business association in Japan where they are arguing that if Japan were not to be in TPP, this would actually promote the hollowing out of the Japanese economy. And that's why what you see there with little wings is the factories, the money, the managerial know-how, everything leaving Japan because Japan becomes a land that cannot sustain competitive production. There are different factors in there. Not all of it is a trade agreement, but the trade agreement is a major one. And while Japan is struggling, it's interesting to, to note that they have these, uh, the rest of the world uh, happily joining hands and Japan is marginalized. So that's how they pitched the not being part of TPP. Now the other uh, illustration comes from a book that translates from Japanese TPP for dummies. And you find it in bookstores everywhere in Japan. And the idea there is, of course, they criticize everything that they can about uh, uh, TBP. And they make the argument here that, in a way, it's going to erode uh, 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 national identity. And I don't know how many of you have visited Japan, but Japan is a culinary uh, paradise. And therefore, uh, uh, that's why you have the monkey there, because. TPP for Dummies is, in Japanese, a a TPP that even monkeys can understand. That's a literal uh, translation. They're talking about the negative effects of TPP, and they are, of course, uh, very negative about the fact that now the Japanese are going to consume what Americans eat, right? The hamburgers and the sodas, and it's going to uh, undermine the culinary traditions of Japan. And then later on, they go on to say that because everybody's going to be... uh, 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 Getting, gaining weight, that then pharmaceutical companies, American pharmaceutical companies, are actually going to have more business opportunities uh, in Japan. So that's just to give you a sense of some of the debates that are taking uh, place. Very quickly on compensation and reform in Japan, mind-boggling. I mean, maybe it's me because I spend my time looking at this and you're not going to think it's really that mind-boggling, but some of the most fundamental reforms ever in agriculture announced in the last few weeks. And it's because of the commitment to open the market. First of all, to start with, Japan is going to liberalize 93.5% of its tariffs. That to the TPP countries is nothing. That doesn't cut it. They're not happy with it. But if you know where Japan is coming from, that's already quite substantial. And there's actually talk about, you know, <coughs> what, what that 93.5% represents is that they set aside the so-called five sacred commodities. And, you know, rice, sugar, dairy, the usual, but now they're talking about within these broader commodities, within these broader categories, to try to look for specific items that could be uh, open and therefore try to increase the ratio to at least 95%. DBP countries not happy yet, but my point being that we have never seen Japan do this before. More importantly, The most fundamental reforms in agriculture that were always uh, 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 neglected have now been announced. And again, you know, probably it's only me that gets the chill saying this, but one of these is the so-called set-aside program. What is this? To me, it's the ultimate uh, 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 inefficiency. For the Japanese government to de facto keep rice prices high, even though they abolished the official policy of high producer prices. What they did is that they controlled production. And they called production by giving subsidies to farmers not to farm. And this is really striking because in Japan the discussion has always been that the self-sufficiency rate is very low and how are you going to then open up to the market, but you're paying your own farmers not to farm. Because if everybody farms rice, the price is going to go down. And the agricultural cooperatives are going to be unhappy because the commission is going to go down. A third of all rice land in Japan is set aside. We're not talking about a minor policy. That will be eliminated by 2018. That was the untouchable element, if you will. And now it will happen. And the direct income payment that I was saying is just an outright subsidy because everybody gets it, that's also going to be reformed and will begin to target only full-time farmers. So you begin to see some glimpses of hope that Japanese agriculture could change. I know that Japanese agriculture represents 1% of GDP. It's not going to have, you know, a big bang effect in economic performance, but it's huge in terms of the symbolic importance for reform of uh, Japan now let me then very briefly talk about South Korea because South Korea actually lately has not been that proactive country that I described what a difference a year and a half makes South Korea actually has taken a very long time to make its mind on whether it would enter the uh, TPP or not there are many reasons for this, one is that Quite frankly, there's fatigue from negotiating with uh, the United States and how draining, as I was describing, that political process was. Also because South Korea decided to follow a different strategy, they emphasized bilaterals with their largest trading partners. And from the point of view, if we have the United States, the European Union, and are now negotiating with China, we're covered. The problem is that the TPP actually offers many different advantages that cannot be reached through those bilaterals. And when Japan joined the TPP, as many other countries, not only China, South Korea also began to have second thoughts as to whether they should join. But the centralization inclusion balance changed. South Korea recently has a new president, President Park, and she has come with different priorities in mind. And the structural reform link and trade liberalization has not been as important to her. More importantly, she immediately reorganized the bureaucracy and that elite group that I described as driving these bold initiatives, the Minister of Foreign Affairs and Trade, no longer has jurisdiction over trade policy. It went back to the line ministry, the industry uh, 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 ministry. And therefore, South Korea has taken a long time to negotiate uh, the TPP. It was just this Friday that finally it seems that South Korea is going to begin consultations about joining this Trans-Pacific Partnership. So again, because the centralization element has decreased, therefore you have uh, fewer uh, bold initiatives and hence you don't have this agitation in uh, society. So final thoughts and then uh, comments and, and, and questions. Um, So basically, what I'm trying to suggest is that if we want to understand the choices that different countries make, it might be profitable to understand that they are confronted with fundamental dilemmas and that how they decide to navigate those dilemmas is going to very very much influence what they can or cannot do in terms of uh, trade agreements. It is true that South Korea had a much uh, larger lead in the beginning, but I think that also eroded by the way it was negotiated uh, the legitimacy of this trade agreement, social support uh, suffered, and it opened the door for open-ended compensation. How will Japan come out? We don't know yet, because it just started to centralize its trade uh, uh, policy making, and because quite frankly we don't know what kind of compensation will be given to uh, farmers and to other disadvantaged sectors. Can they do better in terms of trying to instill a reform incentive or not? That's something that we do not know yet. Will Japan face the heated ratification politics, perhaps not as heated as in South Korea, but will they become more of a political event? Again, we don't know yet. And in my mind, when I think about the domestic politics of trade, the most fundamental challenge in my mind seems to be to generate society uh, uh, acceptance, buy-in, because I think that it's very clear that governments throughout the world have tried to create inclusive systems of consultation, the stakeholder systems, if you will. But most frequently, business interests are part of this, but it's harder to include civil society. And I find that you know, persuading broad segments of society that these abstract trade agreements are actually beneficial is a fundamental challenge that has not, for the most part, been navigated very smoothly. So I'll leave it here. Thank you very much.